Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air with you guys. I know it was just a few days ago that I was on the air, um, and uh, we were uh, discussing the prologue to our new uh, book topic uh, podcast series, being the Battle of Lake Champlain, a brilliant and extraordinary victory by John uh, Schroeder. Well, from the looks of things, we're off to a good start. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm always uh, intrigued by um, you all, my listeners, in that uh, all of you obviously, for one, take a very strong interest, regardless of the uh, topics that have been uh, presented since I first began uh, podcasting back in June of 2020. Seems like it's been a lot longer uh, since that time. But nonetheless, it has been it has been a great uh, journey, but it's a journey that will continue as time goes along. Uh, but I am glad to know that all of you who have been ardent listeners, whether it's been since June of 2020 or you have been a, a recent um, listener, say, for the last year or, say, the past six months, uh, all of you have um, benefited in various ways. And I think it's fair to say that we are going to continue to benefit and grow as this series continues to move along and understanding why, not so much why America had to fight a second war for independence against England, but why America's fate lied at stake in a manner that perhaps the school textbooks didn't teach us from years uh, past. You know, yes, we may have declared our independence from uh, England in 1776. Yes, we may have defeated the mightiest um, military uh, power. But just because we defeated the mightiest military power in the American Revolutionary War, it didn't mean that everything going forward was going to be rosy and that we might just live happily ever after. No, I mean, we had to... Um, we had to go through some other uh, means of trial and errors. You know, the Articles of Confederation didn't work, so we had to scrap that and replace it with the United States Constitution. We also had to make uh, several compromises in order to ensure that when, um, not only when the Constitution was ratified by the states, that um, that a proper uh, governing body would be set up. Of course, that was uh, debated through the Constitution, uh, having legislative, executive, and judicial branches but all of them functioning properly so that one branch, you know, simply did not overpower the other two. Well, here we are in 1812. America is just shy of, uh, well, America is 36 years old, and America is still facing challenges, which isn't a bad thing, but here we are now trying to, um, here we are, you know, we've declared war on England, but in, in this episode, we're going to find out whether or not the U.S. was really prepared from a, a say, from a logistical standpoint, from a, um, not just from a logistical standpoint, but from, say, long-term planning standpoint. In other words, maybe it's fair to say that, okay, it's one thing to declare war, but if you're going to declare war on another nation, wouldn't you want to have everything ready? at your at your uh, disposal, ready to go. In other words, yes, you can declare war, but as we're going to find out in this podcast segment episode, that um, just because you declare war on another nation, 
it might not all automatically always mean that um, that everything is ready. In other words, do you have the proper intelligence findings? Do you have enough manpower? Do you have troops that are seasoned veterans? And do you have the right leadership? I think we're going to learn in this episode that um, while, yes, there are officers who did have leadership, are they really the the officers that we're looking for, given that um, America has seen a lot of changes in her 36 years of existence? But the big question would the big question at stake might be is, okay, what leaders do we have that can lead America in her second war for independence? We might not know all the answers in this podcast segment episode, but I do know that going forward in other set in other podcast segment episodes, we will learn about other officers whom will step up to the plate in some cases for better in some cases for worse. But I do know that as time goes along, we will learn more about uh, Thomas McDonough, the uh, captain of the Navy or the uh, master commandant of the Navy in 1814 as well as um, Army Officer Alexander Macomb. Because after all, it's up to them as officers to uh, not only be able to work together, but also be able to um, oversee the men below them whom will carry on the fight. Not only for the fight that lies at Lake Champlain, but the fight for America's... uh, survival as a nation. So I think it's time to say that we better get this uh, show on the road with um, tonight's podcast segment episode to the Battle of Lake Champlain, a brilliant and extraordinary victory by John H. Schroeder. So here we go with our first leadoff question. After Congress voted to declare war, including President Madison's formal declaration signature from June 18th, where did many U.S. leaders agree upon for a, for a point of invasion? Well, many, um, many were in favor of sending military troop forces north into Canada with an objective to acquire territory from its lower and upper regions. That's quite a um, bold and daring uh, plan. You know, yes, Canada, yes, north of us is Canada, but of course, back then, um, we probably didn't have as many uh, border stations like there are today. Yes, there was a thing called customs back then, like there is today, but obviously, border security is much more tighter nowadays than it would have been, say, in 1812. Now, I'm sure many of us are wondering, okay, if... US, if the U.S. government is wanting to send military troop forces north into Canada with, with the primary objective in acquiring territory from the lower and upper regions, how would this uh, impact um, Great Britain? Well, folks, you know, Great Britain um, oversees Canada. Um, we should be reminded that, in, um, that even as her 13... Um, even as her subjects, uh, being the 13 colonies, declared um, separation from England, you know, um, 
a good deal of um, delegates from the Continental Congress wanted Canada to declare its independence from Britain, given that uh, the northern colonies, most notably New Hampshire, New York, and what we know as present-day Maine, you know, in present-day Vermont, of course, Vermont was not a state at that time, but uh, they all bordered uh, Canada. So it would make practical sense for Canada to um, separate from England in their eyes. But no, uh, Canada did not. But in the year 1791, and of course, when I think of the year 1791, that's when I think of Congress um, approving the... uh, first 10 amendments to the Constitution known as the Bill of Rights. You know, the right to free speech, assemble, petition, uh, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, um, the right to uh, keep and bear arms, um, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. Just a, um, a few of examples of what... Uh, come under the uh, first Ten Amendments to the Constitution, a.k.a. Bill of Rights. But yes, that's what I uh, think of when I think of the year 1791. But as for um, Parliament, or the British Parliament, in the year 1791, Parliament passes, or I should say, enacts uh, legislation into law known as the Constitutional Act. The Constitutional Act divided the province of Quebec into Lower and Upper Canada, As great of a uh, compromise as that was in terms of uh, dividing the province of uh, Quebec into Lower and Upper Canada, when the act um, took effect in 1791, Parliament um, didn't fully specify set borders, most notably for Upper Canada. Of course, you know, most of us would know in today's time that Upper Canada is home to southern and northern Ontario, or really we should say Ontario. But in 1791, Parliament um, is under the assumption that, well, we're just focusing on the province of Quebec with this um, Constitutional Act legislation. And yes, Ontario does border Quebec, its northern borders, But at the time, in 1791, they specifically just did not know exactly where the borders would be set. Unfortunately, they don't have a light switch to be able to do something like that. As for Lower Canada, Lower Canada is stationed along the lower end of the St. Lawrence River. And as for Lower Canada, um, that was home to um, a strong um, French population, that was uh, heavily uh, Catholic. Whereas for um, Upper um, Canada, being that of um, Southern and Northern Ontario, Upper Canada was home to um, Loyalist American settlers and British immigrants. You know, folks, Loyalist American settlers, you know, I know in 1775 after the siege of well, I take it back. In March of 1776, um, when the siege of Boston ended, around what we know on March 17th of 1776, many uh, of those uh, Bostonians whom were loyal to the crown 
I want to say about 100 ships in uh, Boston's uh, wharf left with, um, not only with, left with um, everyday people, you know, that is uh, people whom, whose loyalties were to king and country as well as uh, British troops that were stationed there. Many of them went to Canada. Others went to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Of course, others went to England. But keep in mind that um, for those of us whom would have been living at that time and were loyal to king and country, one place of uh, relocation would have been into what we know as Upper Ontario. And if you're a British immigrant wanting to come to America to start a new life, that's where you also go to settle. And um, whereas for the... uh, for the uh, French uh, population in Lower Canada, they were allowed to practice their own faith peace, peacefully in terms of uh, Catholicism. Uh, the residents of, of uh, Ontario, whether you were in southern or northern Ontario, you were allowed to um, establish your own um, set of laws and your own um, governing body. Did United States leaders like House Speaker Henry Clay of Ken- from Kentucky believe that invading Canada would lay the proper foundation behind addressing unresolved grievances against Britain? I'll tell you a little bit about Henry Clay and what I do know about him. He's originally from um, Hanover County, which is not far from where I live in uh, central Virginia. Henry Clay... Um, went on to become a very successful lawyer. And it just so happens that he was mentored by the same man who mentored uh, Thomas Jefferson, John Marshall, who would go on to become uh, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, a post he held from um, 1801 to 1835. This man also mentored other individuals like James Monroe, um, Littleton... um, What's his face? Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of some other people, uh, like William Branch Giles, uh, for whom Giles County in Virginia, out in southwest Virginia, is named after. Uh, Littleton Taswell, uh, Taswell County, also out in southwest Virginia. Uh, The man who mentored all these men, whom went on to become lawyers, and the same for Henry Clay, was none other than Mr. George Wythe, who was America's first uh, professor of law from the um, College of William and Mary. So, Henry Clay had the privilege of being um, mentored by none other than Mr. George Wythe. Now, um, there is um, an estate that is available for tours, I know, out in Kentucky called, um, the the town is called Ashland, Kentucky, and it was um, named Ashland because that's where Henry Clay was originally from in uh, Hanover County. There is a town called um, Ashland, Henry Clay would go on to um, uh, he would go on to uh, be responsible for making uh, multiple compromises that um, while yes maybe some of those compromises weren't probably the most glamorous of compromises uh, but what I do know is that the compromises that he helped um, orchestrate did um, stave off. Um, the civil war that happened between 1861 and eight to 1865, uh, basically those compromises 
did help um, prevent um, a civil war from taking place um, much earlier than it did. But as for um, U.S. leaders like House Speaker Henry Clay from Kentucky, did was he one of those people who believed that invading Canada would lay the proper foundation behind addressing unresolved grievances against Britain? The answer is yes. Henry Clay himself represented a faction or a particular um, wing from within a political party, in this case being the Democratic-Republican Party, the party that uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, James Madison, uh, James Monroe himself will be a part of. James Madison is part of this uh, Virginia dynasty because four of America's first five presidents, folks, all come from Virginia. Washington the first, Jefferson third, Madison fourth, Monroe fifth. So, yes, Henry Clay is part of this faction group from within the Democratic-Republican Party, whom not only supported going to war against England, they were what were called the um, the War Hawks. Henry Clay and others uh, within this faction firmly believed that a proper invasion had the means behind forcing Britain to bring a complete end to activities involving impressment, the forcing of American sailors off their own ships, and you know, forcing them uh, to fight alongside the British against their own will. And I did leave out something uh, the other night when I discussed the prologue with you guys. Um, For some of you who are curious to know, when did impressment start? When did the British start uh, partaking in this activity? It was long before um, the American Revolutionary War began, and it was a century before the French and Indian War, or aka the Seven Years' War, took place. The practice of impressment started back in 1664. That tells you um, how long back it dated. So, you know, we may feel as though we're the ones that are, you know, being bullied, but if it makes us feel any better, we're not the only ones. It's just gotten worse with time, it seems like. So, Yes, uh, Henry Clay and those from within this faction believe that if we invade Canada, it will force Britain to bring a complete end to activities involving impressment as well as including all existing injustices like like a violation of uh, neutral rights along the high seas. In other words, we should be allowed to trade with whomever we feel comfortable trading with on the high seas, whether it's Spain, the Netherlands. We shouldn't be... um, harassed all the time. We're not selling secrets, but we do have a right to trade with other nations. But, of course, the British and the French don't see that in a time of war. Now, in June of 1812, the same uh, month that, um, that the United States has declared war on Britain, the United States population is 7.5 million. 7.5 million with 18 states. Just two months prior to... Um, the United States declaring war on Britain. In April of 1812, Louisiana was admitted into the Union as the 18th state. So, folks, we have, um, we have states as um, far west as Ohio, which was uh, admitted nine years earlier in 1803. We have states as far north as um, Vermont and New Hampshire, Of course, Vermont was admitted in 1791. 
We also have some other states as far west besides Ohio as Kentucky and Tennessee that were admitted um, right after Washington became president. And then the state that is furthest, um, not furthest south, but west of Georgia, but it's in the Union, southwest would be Louisiana. So yes, we have 18 states with a population of 7.5 million. The population of Canada is half a million, or I should say 500,000. Lower Canada, with just over two-thirds of its people being French Canadians, these people don't have a whole lot of loyalty toward the British. They just want to be their own independent, sovereign um, nation, but they don't really want to be uh, told by the British government what to do. Now, June of 1812, the United States Army stood around 6,000. It seems like a respectable number, but I also have to wonder, okay, even if the population is right around 6,000, are these true seasonal or I should say, are these true seasoned veteran office, veteran soldiers? I mean, you just have to wonder. Or are they the type of soldiers who just come and go as they please? We'll find out probably more here soon. But the uh, army size being that of 6,000 is the equivalent to the same troop size in Canada. Britain in 1812 is fighting a war against uh, Napoleon, against Napoleon Bonaparte, part of the Napoleonic Wars. So there is a disadvantage right here for Britain. Because because she has troops in Europe fighting fighting a big um, war, she cannot send extra troops 3,000 miles across the ocean regardless of whether it's army or navy, all of her resources are dedicated in Europe. So now many of us are probably wondering, well, shouldn't this be a slam dunk victory for the United States government? (laughs) I wished I could say yes. And we're going to find out here shortly why it's the opposite. Could Canada be best described as equivalent to a large tree. Now, I know that sounds like a, um, a very odd um, question in terms of description, but could Canada be best described as equ- being equivalent to a large tree? Well, I mean, if you look at Canada on, the, on a map, Canada is a big country. It really is. I mean, <laughs> you've got provinces as far east as Quebec, and you've got provinces as far west as... Um, British Columbia, um, Manitoba, um, Alberta, Saskatchewan. I mean, it, it's very big. Of course, when I think of uh, Canada, I mean, I think of, you know, cities like Montreal. Um, I think of um, Ottawa. I think of um, Toronto. I think of, um, you know, to the west, I'll th- you know, I think of um, Vancouver. I think of um, Calgary, um Edmonton, um, Winnipeg, I mean, just some of the, you know, larger cities. But at the same time, um, I also know through my uh, job in transportation, uh, given that I 
do business. Um, you know, our trucking company that I work for does a lot of business with uh, with shipments going into Canada and out of Canada into the United States. So other um, places that come to my mind are like, say, in Ontario, for example, or like Mississauga, uh, Ontario, for example, um, Brampton, Ontario. Um, if you, in terms of uh, out in British Columbia, other cities besides Canada, I think of uh, Surrey, um, Burnaby, uh, Victoria, of course, you know, most people assume that the capital of British Columbia is Vancouver. It's not. It's uh, Victoria, named after uh, Britain's Queen Victoria, whom ruled England from 1837 to 1901. But um, as for Canada, yes, uh, the, the question, the answer is yes. Uh, Canada can be best described as equivalent to a large tree. Well, for starters, her roots a.k.a. beginnings, their origins extended into the Atlantic Ocean. Secondly, her trunk, and we're talking here Eastern Canada, folks, her trunk, you know, trees have big trunks. But in the case of Canada, her trunk was the St. Lawrence River. And her branches went as far west into Lakes Ontario, Erie, Huron and beyond. Well, think about it, folks. You know, four of the five Great Lakes touch Canada. Ontario, Erie, Huron, Superior. The only one that doesn't is Michigan. Lower Canada is home to uh, Quebec and Montreal, including the Ottawa River west of Montreal. Upper Canada extended west through the Great Lakes. As for Quebec, or I should say, we might think of a Quebec City, I should say, being with uh, Lower Canada, that was um, that's located near the entryway point to the St. Lawrence River. This is the largest and most vital settlement that was actually protected by British naval forces stationed in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So if there is an emergency, I mean, you don't have a telephone, you don't have any kind of modern-day electricity, electronic technology to advise of an emergency, but if you know that an emergency is imminent and Halifax is not far away, I'm sure it would be fair to say even then that there was some kind of a courier or messenger system where a vessel could come to and from, say, Halifax to um, Quebec and provide um, urgent news that, hey, uh, we need to get the, the Navy out of Halifax and bring them down to um, to where um, wherever there is a current problem in uh, Quebec along the St. Lawrence River. Montreal, however, is more vulnerable than Quebec, or I should say Quebec City, given Montreal was more prone to enemy invasion either down the river, that is down the St. Lawrence River from Lake Ontario, or from Lake Champlain, in northern New York State. So, you know, if you're the British, when the time comes, you, you're going to have to think long and hard about how, how can we go about better uh, defending Montreal. Hang tight for just a moment. Did the U.S. have any form of control over Lake Ontario or upper sections of the St. Lawrence River? The answer is no. 
Okay, if the United States does not have any form of control over Lake Ontario or the upper sections of the St. Lawrence River, then what what would be the most viable route for getting into um, the St. Lawrence River? So the most viable, accessible route into Montreal would have to involve going north past Lake Champlain, across the U.S.-Canada border, then down the Richelieu River to the St. Lawrence River north of Montreal. That seems like uh, quite a complicated um, game plan strategy, but it's the only uh, viable uh, option that the United States has. And even though they may have this option, it's probably not an automatic slam dunk that that they're going to have success all the time in being able to um, access entryway in, by going this uh, lone route. Now, um, the Richelieu uh, River, I did a little research on this. Uh, it's a river of uh, Quebec that rises at Lake Champlain and moves north through Quebec and ends into the St. Lawrence River. The Richelieu River, it's named for Cardinal Richelieu, who was a high-ranking minister whom served under King Louis Thirteenth. Now, Lake Champlain lies predominantly between the states of New York and Vermont. I remember when uh, my wife and I went to uh, Lake Placid, New York, nearly 14 years ago. We spent a day in a at uh, Fort Ticonderoga, and we got to actually uh, witness a French and Indian War reenactment take place, and that was very well worth um, seeing. But um, we did get to see the southern end of Lake Champlain, and across from the fort, it was very visible. I mean, you could see it with your own um, with your own set of eyes. I mean, it wasn't. Um, hey, how do I say it? It wasn't. Um, there, the visibility was clear. I mean, you, you could clearly see it. You could see the Green Mountains uh, overlooking uh, Lake Champlain. So uh, the Adirondacks are in New York State, uh, and the Green Mountains are in um, Vermont. Interesting enough about uh, the Adirondacks, given that the uh, Adirondacks go all the way to uh, north into Lake Champlain, um, that um, the Adirondack Park is encompasses 6 million acres. That's um, more acres of protected land than, say, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Glacier, and Grand Canyon National Parks uh, combined. Uh, Matter of fact, you could fit the state of Vermont into the Adirondack Park. That's how big it is. But uh, yes, Lake Champlain lies predominantly between the states of New York and Vermont while extending north into Quebec. Um, Lake Champlain was named for French explorer Samuel de Champlain, whom navigated the lake's waters in July 1609. Hard to believe that would have been two years after um, the Jamestown, um, after the uh, English had established their settlement at uh, Jamestown, uh, Virginia. And of course, when I think of the year 1609 in Jamestown, I think of that uh, terrible period known as the Starving Time, where um, you know the textbooks years ago said that the uh, settlers died peacefully, they are or of natural causes. No, they didn't. Uh, it got so bad that the Indians, well, for one, were not going to trade with them because they needed to keep their food for their own families. But uh, it happened, folks. Uh, people turned on each other. Um, People were dying left and right to where um, 
historians know that cannibalism did take place. People resorted to um, having to um, cook um, uh, cook belts uh, for food. They had to cook um, shoes. I mean, people simply did not know how to hunt or literally know how to survive a uh, brutal Virginia winter. That's how bad things got. So, yes, when I think of 1609, there are two things that can come to my mind. Yes, um, Samuel de Champlain's uh, navigation of um, Lake Champlain and the uh, starving time for the uh, Jamestown um, settlement in Virginia. But uh, prior to the War of 1812's beginning, had Lake Champlain seen other major conflicts? Yes, most notably during the Seven Years' War and Revolutionary War, but I'll give you an example um, of what had taken place during the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War. During the Seven Years' War, uh, British troop forces in the late 1750s, and by the late 1750s, the British had finally gotten the upper hand in this conflict. The first um, two to two and a half years, they were, um, they were being manhandled by the French and the Indians, but in the late 1750s, British troop forces captured Fort Carillon, uh, later to be named as Ticonderoga, and Crown Point, resulting in their building a military road which went into the Connecticut Valley region. 1760, the British captured Montreal, which resulted in their having firm control over the Lake Champlain region, which also carried over after um, the Seven Years' War ended. Of course, when I think of 1760, I think of um, that being the year uh, in which uh, King George III was officially coronated as uh, King of England. And, you know, it is hard to believe that, yes, when he became King of England, uh, Britain was fighting a war, you know, I mean, things like that do happen, but sometimes we just need to be reminded of it. Whom did uh, President James Madison appoint as senior commander over the United States' northeast sector from Niagara River to the New England coast? His name was Henry Dearborn, a Revolutionary War officer, or I should say a Revolutionary War officer veteran whom went on to serve as President Jefferson's War Secretary. Henry Dearborn is no uh, stranger to um, to fighting um, battles. Matter of fact, he served under uh, George Washington. Um, what I did find interesting about um, Henry Dearborn's time as um President Jefferson's War Secretary. We have to be reminded that even in the early days of the Republic, that um, things weren't weren't pretty. I mean, just like they aren't today. But of course, there wasn't a twenty four hour media back then, or twenty four hour news network like there is today. The closest thing you got um, to anything that might have uh, bore um, breaking news was the newspapers, and of course, the newspapers were partisan back then, just like they are now. But um, for Henry, Deer, Henry Dearborn, uh, he served as Jefferson's war secretary throughout the entire time of Jefferson's presidency from um, 1801 to 1809. Henry Dearborn was responsible for helping President Jefferson draft 
a piece of legislation known as the Military Peace Establishment Act. This uh, legislation doesn't sound as nice as as it uh, turned out to be, and the reason I say it is because this legislation sought to remove many Federalist officers from the Army and Navy regardless of their rank. Why should uh, political party affiliation uh, be a factor in removing someone from their post? It shouldn't be, but the Federalists, um, back in 1798, um, enacted legislation known as the Alien and Sedition Acts, which basically made it a crime to criticize the government. So, anti-Federalists, or what we call the Jeffersonian Republicans, were jailed without any consent. They Many of them were placed in jail, all because they wrote articles criticizing the Adams administration. I tell you, politics was just as ugly then as it as it is today. For Henry Dearborn, he saw um, Montreal as a key target, uh, given it would be attacked from a base around Lake Champlain. Dearborn called for secondary strikes on Upper Canada, targeting Kingston on Lake Ontario, including going as far west as the Niagara and Detroit frontiers. Did Dearborn's plans for invading Canada involve establishing a solidified strategical point along the St. Lawrence River above Montreal? And I'm sure many of you are wondering, why does that matter? Well, it does matter. You know, you can, you can lay out a game plan all you want, but if you don't do the little things, then the little things that aren't um, covered or or are not um, laid out, or um, or uh, I should say, if they're not discussed, then perhaps your side is going to be more vulnerable, if not in the present, but somewhere down the road. But uh, the answer to this question is no. Uh, Henry Dearborn's plans for invading Canada did not involve establishing a solidified strategical point along the St. Lawrence River above Montreal, had Dearborn done the opposite, Upper and Lower Canada would have become severed per communications and means of transporting supplies. If Henry Dearborn had come up with a plan for this, that also would mean that British forces would have had limited access in transporting their supplies uh, across the St. Lawrence River. So if you don't have any measure of... Um, preventing the enemy from um, transporting stuff across this uh, river. And given that given that the tree trunk is the St. Lawrence River, then you are at a complete disadvantage. I mean, not just with transporting supplies, but transporting soldiers. I mean, it's, it's that vital, folks, to have control of an entire river. Because think about it. Uh, the branches represent other tributaries like, say, Lakes Ontario, Erie, and all the way to Huron. If you have that kind of advantage, oh man, think of what you can do well west in terms of maintaining strongholds. Dearborn's war strategy plan was not simply just not doable given the Madison administration and Congress had not prepared for war. They debated which was great, but they didn't prepare for the war. They also didn't prepare 
very well with this multi-tier invasion of Canada. William Eustace, who, who is the war secretary, he has no military experience. You have a war secretary and he has no military experience. Do you have a lot of confidence in him? Probably not. If you do, you're probably playing with fire. So this guy has no military experience. The War Department has no chief of staff, meaning that there is no adequate system in play for um, for securing provisions and equipment. You know, soldiers need equipment. Soldiers need provisions, you know, like shoes. They need provisions like uh, a coat. They need, you know... They need, you know, the the most uh, base. They they need the most basic of essentials, but they also need other essentials in order to um, to ensure that they will be able to um, be up for the uh, mission uh, or for their um, assignments, not just short term but long term. Did the United States government um, lack experienced, capable officers? including well-trained soldiers, to conduct a multi-tiered invasion of Canada? Yes. And how so? Well, the officers whom did have experience were Revolutionary War veterans. You know, the Revolutionary War ended about 30 years earlier. Yes, the Treaty of Paris ended the war in 1783, the Battle of uh, Yorktown in 1781, where uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to uh, General Washington, that was really the last major battle uh, of the war that was fought. You had some skirmishes take place in Georgia and South Carolina um, between uh, late 1781 into uh, portions of 1782, and the British were still occupying Savannah and Charleston, New York City, but um, but think about it. You know, a lot of things have changed in thirty years, and I think it'd be fair to say that while yes, it might be great that we still have officers with experience being Revolutionary War veterans. The greater problem is that the torch, no torch, had been passed down to the next generation of leaders. So, in other words, we don't have anybody like. President John F. Kennedy, whose famous line during his inaugural speech from January 20th of 1961, when he said, I ask my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Well, in other words, what kind of example can we set, or I should say a precedent can we set in passing down the torch to a new generation of uh, American um, officers whom will um, set the same kind of examples as those whom served before them from the Revolutionary War era. Well, this is where politics um, also comes into play. If you're a Federalist, you're in favor of a standing army, even in times of uh, peace. If you're an anti-Federalist, a Jeffersonian Republican, you fear standing armies. You fear them as um, as an encroachment upon your um, rights to be uh, free at all times. And the reason why um, Jeffersonian Republicans are fearful of standing armies is because standing ar- the presence of standing armies did have negative effects for those living in England. 
based upon how people were uh, treated even in times when war wasn't uh, going on, but that doesn't mean that there were um, political protests. It doesn't mean that there were disturbances of the peace, and even if there is a disturbance of the peace, there has to be some kind of um, militarized organization that can... um, that can uh, quell whatever uh, conflict is uh, going on. But the bottom line is that for the anti-federalists, they view a standing army as an institution that will uh, constantly encroach upon the um, most sacred rights of everyday Americans uh, in terms of their right to have express freedom of speech, the right to assemble and petition. For the federalists, look, we need to have an army, Yes, we can be in a time of peace and prosperity, but we need to have an army in the event the peace and prosperity that we are enjoying gets taken away from us without our consent. The majority of the Revolutionary War officers like Henry Dearborn were between the ages of late 50s and early uh, 60s. Come 1812, Henry Dearborn is 61 years old. He's past his prime. I hate to say it, but he really is. The United States Army of 6,000 troops in 1812 were positioned, or I should say stationed, on forts all around the United States, but none could be found near the border between the United States and Canada. So, you know, we've got troops stationed as far southwest as uh, Louisiana. We have troops as far west as present-day Ohio uh, and Kentucky. We have troops all around, but, but... we don't even come close to having half of those 6,000 troops all along the um, U.S.-Canada border. Were the New England states opposed to going to war against England? Yes, their opposition was primarily based upon what President Thomas Jefferson had signed into law five years earlier, the Embargo Act of 1807. The Embargo Act sought to reduce or I should say it sought to reduce dependency on British imported goods coming in as well as closing U.S. ports for all exports, which come long-term would force Britain to stop the practice of impressing American sailors and respect American neutrality on the high seas. What Thomas Jefferson really wanted was for for as many Americans to start um, making um, their own manufactured goods domestically without having to send them 3,000 miles across the ocean, knowing that our own sailors are going to get captured and captured against their own will to fight on the side of the enemy. Well, all of that's great on paper, but the problem is that not everybody may have access to uh, spinning wheels uh, for, um, for textile purposes. So what looks great on paper ends up actually losing its luster when it affects everyday real people. So the Embargo Act of 1807 resulted in thousands of New Englanders losing their jobs. We're not talking like 1,000 New Englanders. I believe I read somewhere sometime back where it was the number was between five and 10,000 New Englanders were out of work, not just from a manufacturing or a textile um, industry, but how about those New Englanders working on the, um, on the ports? Like, say, the ports of uh, Boston, Salem, Marblehead, Gloucester. You've got um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Um, You've got uh, ports in Connecticut, um, for example, like um, 
mystic, um, believe it or not, New Haven support. Um, just to um, give you a, give you some examples of uh, ports that were um, very vital, um, not just for inland purposes, but for ports that would that were right along the ocean's waters, the Atlantic Ocean's waters, and getting um, goods um, exported um, from America to say England. And we do have to be reminded, folks, that that the United States in the early part of the 19th century, in terms of generating uh, revenue, the government was heavily dependent upon exports, more so than imports. So, yes, the Embargo Act of 1807 resulted in thousands of New Englanders losing their jobs. Economically, it, it ruined American shipping exports, where prior to the legislation getting signed, Exports stood at 108 million in 1807, and a year later in 1808, exports stood around 22 million. That's about 86 million dollars in lost revenue because of this embargo. Farm prices declined sharply. Britain, including her rival France, did not suffer from the embargo. They just went elsewhere for trade. The New England states by 1812 opposed the idea of even allowing their militias to be controlled by the federal government, all because they, have, they are in com- were in complete opposition to this um, legislation that pretty much has, um, has put it not just a 101 dent into their economy, it has pretty much uh, shut it down to where it, it's going to take, it, it took a couple of years at best just for it to get back on the right track. Whom in Canada had charge of both the military and civilian government? His name was Sir George Prevost, P-R-E-V-O-S-T. Prevost was not originally from England. He was born on May 19th of 1767 in what is present-day Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, For those of you who are curious to know where Hackensack is, it's in uh, northern New Jersey, not far from the New uh, Jersey-New York City line. George uh, Prevost, um, his father served in the British military, so he's no stranger to um, when it comes to family in the military. May 3rd of 1779, at the age of 12, believe it or not, folks, you know, children back then had to grow up pretty quickly, given that life expectancy wasn't high, but at the age of 12, young George joined the British military and got commissioned as an ensign being the lowest rank for commissioned officer within the British Army Infantry Regiments. Over time, he helped lead troops into combat against French forces in the, in the Caribbean region. He served as civilian lieutenant governor at St. Lucia, including a government stint at Dominica. What post did George Prevost hold from 1808 to 1811? He served as Nova Scotia's lieutenant governor, which included the rank of lieutenant general. Boy, I tell you, George uh, Prevost has really gotten some uh, significant experience, not only in the Caribbean, but he's also getting some good experience in, um, in Canada as well. But, you know, we do have to be reminded, folks, that Britain is the largest empire in the world, Her empire is not uh, concentrated in just North America. Her empire stretches south into the the Caribbean. And we do have to be reminded that um, the nations in the Caribbean that were under her control, they were not um, 
They were not in favor by no means of declaring separation from England. The only ones that in the end declared separation were those 13 colonies in what is now the United States. Of course, George III not only um, de- declared them to be an open rebellion, but by, doing, but by the colonies doing so, he viewed them as his ungrateful subjects. Come October 21st of 1811, George Prevost became governor-in-chief of British forces in North America. This is a big deal, folks, to get this kind of uh, promotion. He's now a true bigwig. Prevost, after assuming the new command, went about preparing Canada for war against the United States by obtaining support. And believe it or not, folks, he got support from French-Canadian political leaders as well as from Roman Catholic officials in the province of Quebec. That's quite a um, a leap of uh, faith in terms of compromise, because, you know, when we think of Protestants and Catholics, we think of, you know, we think of years past when uh, religion, well, religion even to this day can still be considered a great undoing, but in Thomas Jefferson's time, He often said that religion was the greatest undoing of mankind, Uh, Catholics persecuting uh, Protestants, all because there were those whom uh, challenged the Catholic Church's hierarchy. But believe it or not, uh, yes, Protestants persecuted Catholics. And what do you know, folks? Isn't it fair to say that Protestants persecuted Protestants? Yes, because just because you were Protestant, it didn't mean you got to worship freely uh, regardless of where you may have lived in the 13 colonies. I know, for example, in Virginia, it was um, the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church. And if you were a Baptist, um, you were not in good standing with um, with those of uh, the greater Anglican communities. Uh, Baptists were vigorous, vigorously persecuted. Uh, they were not allowed to uh, freely uh, practice their faith. Uh, they... Um, they, along with Methodists, were some of the greatest, um, largest uh, group of dissenters in uh, Virginia. But thankfully, as time went along, um, by uh, the mid-1780s, Thomas Jefferson, um, one of the three things that he uh, wanted to be remembered for when he died was being the uh, founding uh, father on the, um, for the uh, statutes of uh, religious freedoms in Virginia. So we do have Jefferson to thank for uh, religious freedom, but I think he would be happy to know in today's time that uh, Catholics and Protestants, you know, do get along for the most part. So yes, for George Prevost, um, he was able to take a big step by uh, obtaining uh, support from French-Canadian political leaders as well as Roman Catholic officials. He even got approval to establish two new units of Canadian troops to appointing Major General Isaac Brock as Upper Canada's military commander. And there is a place in Ontario, the province of Ontario, called Brockville, which is named after Isaac Brock. Given George Prevost himself could not plan any offensive attacks against the United States due to the Napoleonic Wars taking place in Europe, what did he do to modify the current situation? He intended to go about improving existing military outposts, which meant securing all communication and supply routes along the St. Lawrence River, including Lakes Ontario and Erie. Late July 1812 saw Prevost have 4,000 regulars and militiamen in place, 1,600 
of those uh, soldiers were stationed nearly 30 miles from Champlain. Control of inland waterways meant no interruptions for troops and supplies. So it's fair to say that uh, Sir George Prevost is already one step ahead of the United States. Yes, we may have declared war, but George Prevost was already in Canada prior to us declaring war. He already knew the ins and outs. He knew where to go in terms of modifying the existing conditions of forts along the St. Lawrence and perhaps just outside the St. Lawrence River area, but he knew how to go about fortifying them so that going forward, control of inland waterways, being that of the St. Lawrence, Lakes Ontario, Erie, and of course, you know, all the way to Huron, are going to be um, not only protected, but there will be no interruptions for troops and supplies moving, um, moving through regardless of direction. Well, that covers it for this uh, podcast uh, segment episode. Now, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, be in uh, what's called... We, are, we finished uh, talking here tonight about uh, part one of two called the Indecisive Northern Theater. So when I'm on the air again next, we'll be discussing part two of two uh, with regards to the Indecisive Northern Theater. We're going to learn more about... Um, the next time I'm on the air, we're going to learn about how uh, the war really gets going and where it actually starts for the United States in terms of this um, multi-tier invasion and whether or not the guy who's leading it, where the U.S. officially strikes, if he really is someone who is um, a capable, and, or I should say a, uh, a competent officer. Well, thank you for your time as always, and uh, wherever you all may live, um, continue to stay safe, and thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Take care for now.